0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Joan Koenig on The Musical Child. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the parenting, philosophy, or psychology category for episode number 123 with Michaeline Duclef. On Hunt Gather Parent.
1: I'm Michaeline Ducleff, author of Hunt Gather Parent What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling.
0: Hello, readers. Joan Koenig is the founder of Co Koenig Music School, Preschool, and Kindergarten in Paris, established in 1986, a graduate of the Juilliard School and the author of The Musical Child, using the power of music to raise children who are happy, healthy, and whole. Joan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm pretty good. I'm very happy to be a Speaking with you today, I took a look at your podcast and it makes me want to read all of those books.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. That's a a great joy to get to speak with you, in part because I understand the importance of music, but I also have a six and a four-year-old at home. So to speak with one of the foremost experts at it, who has also taken an interest in the neuroscience side of things, I think this is going to be a fun time over the next hour or so. So what was your initial goal with The Musical Child?
1: Hmm. Okay, maybe I can give you a little bit of history. I opened a music school in Paris uh, almost 35 years ago, and I noticed as time went by that I was getting interested in younger and younger children. And now I'm doing babies, and who knows, maybe, you know, in utero next time. But I was doing things very intuitively, but I was seeing incredible results. But, you know, music cognition, the whole world of neuroscience is so so new you know it's three decades old so a lot of this information is not readily available but what happened is I was invited to attend a conference it was called the neuroscience of art and it was in Salzburg in Austria in this beautiful place called the Salzburg Global Seminar and we were 40 people we were 20 creative people and 20 scientists and it was just an absolute eye-opening experience for me I think we can safely say it was life-changing because There was a lot of time there, of course, presentations, but there was a lot of informal time discussing with some of the biggest music cognition experts in the world. And I began to realize that I was pretty on track in what my intuitions were telling me, but it gave me the impulse to go even further and to test even other things. And it also just opened up an entire world of understanding how music works in the brain, although, you know, we, we don't understand everything about it yet, but... What it opened up to me, too, were the, the, the links. And these are longitudinal studies, uh, and there's, they're peer-reviewed. Nobody's questioning it. Music helps children's development in basically every area. There's an anecdote by a wonderful um, a scientist named Robert Zatori, who's at the University of McGill in Canada. And he joked that uh, when people ask him, where is music processed in the brain? And he says, everywhere from the neck up. Hmm. So I began to, having read all this research, discussed, met with scientists and so on, I began to realize that people are just not, a, are not aware of this. And this can influence educators and, and parents so much if they if they just became aware that this science exists. And the problem is, that it's all lodged in research papers that uh, if they're hard for me to read, they're you know going to be really difficult for the, you know, everyday teacher or parent, whatever, because I have some degree of, you know, research on this question. So I really felt that there was something missing and that, that this needed to be dealt with. And as I was writing the book, I began to realize also that um, teachers need to know this. Teachers need to know, for example, that when a child isn't clapping in rhythm, it's not that he or she is not musical, is that there's actually, it's, this is biological, There's there's a little disconnect there, and it involves a lot of portions of his brain, and it will affect a lot of things far beyond music. So it really became a passion and I and I and I do believe that if this information is more readily available we can be helping the youngest children much more than than we're doing right now.
0: And we'll certainly get to the cognitive disabilities that can be addressed through an understanding or lack thereof, of rhythm a little bit later in our conversation. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of just how music helps children at various developmental points, I'm curious, how did your love for music evolve throughout your childhood?
1: Uh, that's, that's a great question. Well, first of all, my mother was not had no musical training, but she sang a lot, and she believed in some prescient manner, you know, this is, this is, you know, 1965 or 63. She just thought music was going to be very important. And she thought that every piano, every house should have a piano. So she got a piano and put it in the basement. And I declared that I wanted piano lessons. So this was probably about the age of four or five. And so this entailed walking down the street to some neighbor whose name I unfortunately do not remember. And I just loved my piano lessons. But what was happening was that, Nobody had any musical guidance in my family. I would spend a lot of time just playing around on my piano. And I would make up stories. I would improvise little songs, or I would try to find songs that I'd already heard. And I was just doing it all, you know, very intuitively. And when I got older, I would listen to the radio, and I would just try to figure out how to play that song. And I remember realizing that basically most songs, especially pop songs, you can play them, and they involve three chords. (laughs) So... When I later had music theory lessons, I told one of my teachers, you know, I've discovered this thing, you know, there's three chords, really important chords. And she said, you know what their names are? I said, no, I have in a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my musical childhood, but was also something that's very important is that there was music in American schools at that time. And when I was a little bit older, we lived in outside of Seattle, Washington, and there were fantastic youth orchestras. And I went to summer camps and lived and breathed music Every day, And we sometimes forget that the prime motivation for, for anybody to play music is to do it with other people. So I felt like I was dropped into a, a bath of making music with other people fairly early on. And that just provides such extraordinary motivation.
0: So the way that you break this book down is starting with year one, which is typically ages zero to one, all the way through year six, which is the age five to six for most of the children in your school. With year one, what are some good ways for a parent to connect with that baby musically in his or her first few months of life or that entire first year?
1: I think the most important thing to realize is that babies prefer music to speech. And this has been largely proven, notably by a wonderful scientist named Laurel Trainer. Their first utterances are often very musical. It's kind of like, ah, ah, ah. This is one of the reasons that this particular language has evolved that, that everybody has agreed to call motherese. Uh, you can call it parentese as well, but um, <laughs> it's often called motherese. And it involves basically exchanging with your baby It doesn't actually have to be real words. But the idea that what's been shown about motheries around the world is that it's not flat speech. All over the world, it sounds very different in different countries, but it's always very lilting, very sing-song. And this is what engages babies. They just respond to it more so, and they respond even more if the parent is singing. So my suggestion for parents with a newborn is... Get the conversation going. I call it the first duet. And you don't have to be a musician. You don't even have to feel confident about singing. At the beginning, it really is just a nonsense exchange, you know, of, oh, I love my little baby so, so, so much. And you'll get a response from the baby. They'll just kind of get yeah. something like that. But after a while, I think most parents see that, they are engaging the, the child, and the child is is imitating facial expressions. And there's a very beautiful study that was done ages ago where a mother and baby were filmed and recorded. And a wonderful scientist named Stephen Malik, Malik made a way of analyzing the sound. And what he showed was that it almost worked like a piece of music. There's sort of the entry. There's a, a moment when the baby is getting a little more involved and agitated and then the baby kind of announces the end of the conversation by doing something that's descending and held a little longer like you know "Ah." (laughs) or when you get to the end of a piece (laughs) so you have this downward movement i was fascinated by that
0: was that the Uh, university of edinburgh study
1: exactly absolutely this is colin trevarsan who was part of the uh, um the Cognitive re- Revolution, he was with the biggies at Harvard in the in the 60s, but his specialty became infant musicality.
0: Hmm. Is there an evolutionary reason behind why we baby talk our newborns as such?
1: There's a theory that's pretty well accepted, and I love it. It deals with the fact, first of all, that babies are the mammals that are least ready for independent life when they come out of the womb. You know, a horse will be standing up within a few hours. There's a level of independence among young chimpanzees and birds and that sort of thing. But as you well know, our newborns need total care and they can't do some of the things that other mammals can do, for example, hold on to their mother's neck. They can't even sit up straight. So the idea is that maybe one of the evolutionary reasons was that parents can't stop everything and take care of the child all the time, especially we can imagine in the hunter-gatherer era, somebody had to pluck that chicken. And so the idea was that perhaps Mother Ease developed out of the necessity to keep contact with the child, even if you couldn't hold them and be physically taking care of them.
0: Interesting that you point out that amongst all the senses, a baby's hearing is far more developed than just about anything else. On a separate note, still in year one, what is embodied cognition and how does it manifest in your baby music in class?
1: Okay, embodied cognition, and there's other ways of some people call it learning from the bottom up. But embodied cognition is kind of what it (laughs) what it sounds like. The fact is that we learn through our bodies. And the young children learn about the world through sensory exploration. And at the beginning of life, the most highly developed sensory organ for the child is actually their mouth, which is why they're constantly putting things into it. (laughs) They're trying to figure out what that thing is. And They're learning through their own movements. They're learning through touch. Their hearing is, as you mentioned, absolutely exquisite. So you have this enormous window of opportunity in these baby classes because they respond very quickly with their entire bodies. You'll see even six-month-old infants looking like they're choreographing something they're hearing. So when they would get a little bit older, what I've been experimenting with and getting great results is that you can't make music without the body first of all, you're singing or you're clapping or you're playing an instrument or you're dancing at the same time. (laughs) So you're having a bunch of different things that are happening at the same time while let's say you're singing a song. So there's so many different portals into your mind when that's happening, that my hypothesis is that this gives us a lot more things to hold on to about whatever it is we're learning. So when children are learning pieces of music, they're responding to the music with their bodies. They're remembering that tune. And that, and and sometimes when they're as young as 18 months, when they come back the next week, you can tell that they've registered the tune and the movements that go along with it because it involves their entire body. And when they get a little bit older, what's fascinating to see is that anything you teach them through music and movement, they learn very quickly. They memorize it easily, and the duration of the memory is is spectacular.
0: Any of us who have been around young children, babies and infants, have dealt with the inevitable fit-throwing that occurs. You talk about musical solutions with an upset baby. What is the first intervention?
1: Okay, the first intervention for me is when a child is having a fit. I think it's important to know that, first of all, they don't necessarily want to. And they certainly don't understand what's happening to them but it's very likely that there's something chemical going on in their brains which one of your guests talked about if a child is having an anxiety attack his brain is flooded with probably flooded with cortisol or or some of those uh, neurotransmitters that are very uh, um, they just put people in a fog of anxiety or stress or whatever and my experience has been that this child needs to be reached somehow So if you begin actually almost crying with the child, you're creating a unison effect. The child knows at least that you're hearing them because you're actually singing with them. And you're not entertaining them. You're not having them laugh. You're actually just trying to reach this level of connection that will allow you to bring the child off this down from this terrible level of anxiety that she's experiencing. So you can actually literally slow down the singing and the child will... Probably begin to follow you. You can even lower the pitch. So you might be, ah, 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 ah just keep it, you know, going down. Hmm. And I've seen it happen so many times. It's the most recalcitrant child, I think, child. It took a good six or seven minutes, but I've seen it happen instantly as well. There's just something about the fact of being in unison with a child that is vastly reassuring for them.
0: I almost wish my four and six year old were a little bit younger to try some of these things out. However, they are four and six and we'll get to those ages in just a second. The second year of the child's life is all about walking and talking. What is proprioception and how does music help with this?
1: Okay, proprioception is basically understanding where your body is, where it starts and stops. And even how it works. So this is why when you see a a tiny infant waving their hands around with not a lot of control and they can't clap their hands together because they can't quite figure out how those two hands match up because they're not even quite sure where they are. So children naturally begin to understand where their bodies are. Music helps because if parents are actually doing movements with their children, they are guiding their child through the notion of where their hands are, where their feet are, where their head is, all this kind of thing. But also when when children, if we come back to the anxiety attack, when children are having great anxiety, sometimes actually holding them quite tightly in your arms is very reassuring because it's showing them that their body is being taken care of. There's no loose parts out there getting lost. They are being really firmly held. And this works even with older children. So the idea is that music stimulates movement. It actually, it reaches into our brains and tickles a few areas that just want to get us going. And also it's even involved in some of the pleasure areas of our brains. I like to say that when you see these children giggling and moving and dancing, they're getting a happiness high here. It's not in our imaginations. Music produces generally positive emotions. And apparently it even has expressions in the same part of the brain in which addiction occurs. So... I figure if you've got to have an addiction, music's probably a pretty good one.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. Now, it cannot be overstated how important human partnership is in language acquisition, Joan. What's the difference between video learning and in-person learning, according to University of Washington neuroscientist Patricia Kuhl? And this is obviously something that's important, not just for little ones, but also adults as well in this Zoom era, where we don't seem to be having nearly as much face-to-face interaction with one another.
1: Absolutely. Dr. Kuhl pointed out that she had some serious doubts about the validity of ed tech, of all these things that are supposed to have your child learn in a foreign language or whatever. And so she did an experiment about it with a group of very young, actually babies, nine-month-olds. They had a Mandarin tutor for six weeks, and one was a real person, who all the person did is read them stories and engage with them. And the other control group had uh, videotapes. And at the end of the period, the control group had learned absolutely nothing, whereas the people who had children, babies who had had live Mandarin interventions, they were tested and you could, they, it was seen that they distinguished man, what we call Mandarin tones, the tones that rise or the tones that lower down. But in a way, Dr. Kuhl and Colwyn Trebartham from the University of Edinburgh are saying the same thing, that we are a community of species and that we learn through exchanges with with one another. We learn language and we learn music in the same way. So I have doubts about the wisdom of of using technology with young children at all. I think that they need what Kuhl calls social gating. They need these interpersonal relationships. For example, I've noticed that when we have somebody come in and play for the children, they can sit as long as a half an hour and watch this live musician perform. Hmm. And if you put on a CD, or spotify you've lost them within five minutes they're wow. just not interesting
0: yeah the technology thing is such an uphill battle for a parent these days my wife and i the way we tried to handle it is to really minimize to diminish altogether any screen time before the age of two it's almost inevitable, though. So it's about trying to teach them this idea of moderation and maybe giving them that 30-minute show every day or every other day. And at a certain point, they're going to be able to make those decisions for themselves. But in watching little ones who don't know any better, I mean, they get so locked in on those screen that they really are tuning everything out. and It's almost like they're no longer able to be present in this world.
1: Absolutely. And, and Trey, it's interesting because a few years ago, it was in November and I was thinking, what's different? I was I was sensing children in the school had less focus, uh, less patience, less empathy. And I thought, what's going on here? I've got kids from all over the world. You can't pinpoint one family style or nationality or culture. And suddenly I thought they all grew up with smartphones <laughs> and their parents are on their phones all the time. And a lot of educators are seeing that there's a lot of damage being done by this exposure. And I agree that as a parent, you can't live in a little bubble and tell your child that, you know, they can never watch a screen because as soon as they get old enough to do so, they will go to their friend's house. And the first thing they will want to do is watch a screen. (laughs) But I agree it has to be encadré, it has to be codified. And there has to be a huge degree of responsibility for the parents and hopefully be able to have the children learn to assume this responsibility as well. But I personally feel that music is the ultimate slow food because children can't do it without being completely focused. They just can't make music together. I mean, even tapping your hands in rhythm, especially if there's a rhythmic change, these children are watching so intently and they're absolutely picking up on all sorts of very tiny cues. And it's wonderful for the development of social empathy and intuition and
0: awareness of others. Yes, all those things. In year three, a big boost happens where children become much more in touch with emotion and also social development through creative play. How so?
1: When children are around between three and four, it's a wonderful time because they're beginning to understand a little bit of what is real and what is a story, or they become interested in the world beyond themselves. And I think all children love a good story. And if they're given the opportunity, you know, we give children crayons and paper and we have them drawing as soon as they can hold a, barely hold a a pencil. But if you do the same thing with an easy instrument that is just, you can plop on it and it'll play, (laughs) or a xylophone, children begin to create things themselves too. I have a lot of videos of children improvising things on the piano long before they can play it. And what's interesting is they're replicating basically 2,000 years of human history, we get them going down in the low notes when it's scary. And then if something's butterfly, it's up here. And they just, (laughs) it's in their DNA. They just go for it. But I think that children become more socially aware and have more emotional intelligence when they talk about emotions and when they can express them. And I think that music is one of the things they will say, this is a sad song, or this is a scary song. They're just sort of developing, a, would say, a wider palette of emotional expression than a child who won't have access to music.
0: What is music scribbling, which is an activity that's very popular in your year three classroom? And is there a good way for parents with no obvious musical instruments or talents to engage in musical scribbling with their children at home?
1: Absolutely. I would really encourage everybody to get a little keyboard and keyboards, electronic keyboards.
0: Like a little Casio.
1: They're so inexpensive, you know, I can get techie and say, try to get one that has the same size uh, as a real piano keys. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that matters is that the parent sit down with the child and say, let's make a story. And the parents will do the same things as the children. Maybe they're just going like this. But if that's the wolves chasing somebody, children won't do it if they never did it before much later on at the age of seven or eight. But most toddlers, they'll really get into it. They'll sometimes accompany themselves on little songs they're making. But I think it's just, it leads to improvisation, which is one of the most stellar things that I think the human species is able to do, personally. But they will search. And when they're a tiny bit older, they will spend as much as a half an hour trying to find out a song. Trying to, they're just a... But they don't find that... They can't find that note, so they're going then finally they find and then they've got it. So I think musical scribbling leads to confidence in their ability to invent stories, to use whatever knowledge they have to create something beautiful that satisfies them. It does lead to looking for tunes that they like. And then it does lead to actually being able to not be bound in by the musical score and
0: improvise. Is there a critical age for musical understanding like there is language acquisition?
1: I never want to discourage people because a lot of people I know have started music later in life and have become great musicians. I think in my experience that there is a window, and it's the same one as language, that we acquire language from birth till the age of six. And at that point, we're fluent. Our syntax is perfect. The vocabulary will keep expanding. But the child's natural relationship to the structure of the language is in place. And if this does not happen before before the age of six, the child will probably have language difficulties throughout the rest of their lives. So what happens if you use the same process, which is basically all oral interventions, a lot of singing, even naming the notes while you're singing them, what happens is you develop this very natural reaction to music, which means that a child can hear a tune and they will know how to produce it on an instrument And it becomes very instinctive and very children develop excellent pitch, very, very good rhythm. It just puts their musical, a very natural musicality in place that does not happen if they start learning music at the age of six or seven by learning to read music.
0: How does music help boost things like self-control, focus and anticipation, which are three traits that modern science considers to be more important than IQ for success and happiness in life?
1: Well, imagine a group of three-year-olds or three or four-year-olds, and they've each got a, a xylophone or a drum. They're working together on a little a little piece of music. This means that they have to, that involves, for example, stopping or starting or call and response, or simply knowing when it's your turn to join into the, to the piece of music. So what you have is children who are waiting their turn they have to anticipate because you have to be able to and you have a need a second to lift that hand up to bring it down to the xylophone or your drum. So there has to be the self control of waiting for your entry time, the anticipation of when that's going to happen. You have to be reading other children's cues because music is never completely static. The, the tempo can even change slightly while people are making music together. But this adjust these micro adjustments children do with absolutely no problem, and the, the focus. As soon as you space out for a second, you're off. I was thinking about myself the other day, the fact that I, I can get so I just try to multitask, and it's an absolute disaster. And I'm listening to something fascinating, and I'm actually thinking about the fact that what I want to make for dinner. And I think, stop, stop. You're not listening to the podcast. And within a second, I'm gone from the podcast. <laughs> and if, you, if I was making music at that point, everybody would have stopped and said, Joan, concentrate So it's a very gentle, natural way to help children develop these attributes.
0: And music, I think on that note, is all about synchronization, which is something that distinguishes it from other art forms, which helps to develop things like empathy and altruism, too.
1: Yeah, the more and more I think that there's one thing because scientists often don't agree about uh, about things or they'll be contesting this or that, but... There's actually a scientist who says, stop saying that music makes you smarter. It doesn't. You can't prove that. I'm game for that. To me, it doesn't really matter. It makes you so many other things that if your IQ hasn't you know, jumped up a few points, it doesn't matter to me. But <laughs> what everybody agrees upon is that it is this synchronization, this ability to actually move in tempo together, which is so necessary. It was probably necessary for our survival because music was used in, in very early times, we think to synchronize things like rowing a boat or pushing that heavy stone to build the pyramid. Music helps people synchronize their movements. So I think that science really agrees right now that it's so important that when you see a child who isn't able to synchronize, you should pay attention to that and help that child be able to move into a collective musical practice or simply tap his feet to the same drummer as everybody else.
0: Year four includes a continued understanding and musical comprehension, helping to enhance the musical comprehension of your three to four year olds. Why aren't you very concerned with teaching children how to read music, even around this age, after they've been in your school for a couple of years?
1: I think it's important to note that generally all over the world is accepted that children don't really need to learn to read and write before first grade. Some people are starting earlier now, but it's Children have extraordinary oral capacities, as you said. Their, their hearing is fully developed in the last trimester before birth. So you've got these amazing ears going on, but their visual field and the way that they register those famous five lines of the of the musical staff, that's really hard for them. The notion even of up and down on a, on a two-dimensional surface, this is much trickier. And when they're learning to write, you see a lot of letter mirroring and things. So reading and writing is not really developmentally great before at least five or six and for music since they have this amazing ability in these amazing ears my feeling is get them highly developed orally you know our kids if they hear this they know that sol soleil or sol the sunshine so uh it looks like they all have perfect pitch it's not necessarily perfect pitch but their ears are highly trained, and this gives them the ability to make music together. And when they do learn to read music, it's so easy because they're already hearing it in their heads. So I think that you can block the process when you try to get them to read music too early, or you can choose to develop those little ears just as much as possible so that when they do learn to read music, they kind of go, oh, duh, (laughs) that's easy.
0: You told the story of a little boy in year four who was playfully dishonest with you and his teacher during a lesson. Why is lying actually a healthy thing for children around this age?
1: Okay, lying is part of the the development of what is called theory of mind. And I have to tell you, Trey, that I was kind of intimidated by the idea for a long time until I finally found a really good definition Theory of mind simply means that you don't know what's in the other person's head. So all you can have is a theory about what's in that person's head. Hmm. That made a lot more sense to me. And so when a child begins to develop theory of mind, this means that he or she is aware that the person next to them is thinking differently than them or might think differently, that they're not just exact replicas of one another. So it's the beginning of the child being aware of other people, intensely aware of other people and what they might think. And one of the ways that children will try out this theory of mind is to tell a blatant lie and see if that person believes them or not. (laughs) And the link to music for me is that music develops such intuition that you have to be watching someone very carefully to be able to play music with them. And I think that there's an emotional factor there that intervenes with this intense watching that I feel feel probably contributes to the development of theory of mind. And by the way, theory of mind is the thing that children on the autism spectrum have difficulty with. So it's a very important part of our development.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because a lot of people on the spectrum have a hard time empathizing with others. So I think that does play into theory of the mind. Now, you've mentioned a couple different times throughout our conversation about rhythm. How does your school teach rhythm?
1: It starts out just very, very physically. It's all about moving together, playing together. But we do, what we do is put names on things. Once once children are pretty good about being able to imitate uh, a rhythm, we go ahead and put the name on it. I like to think that this sets up the path for easy rhythmic understanding afterwards, because if they're feeling it in their body and they're saying the name of that rhythm, when they'll be older and they're actually reading a whole note, I'm hoping what they're going to remember is rolling themselves into a ball and going backwards and forwards, counting to four. So the idea, once again, embody cognition. We try to make everything very, very sensory. But as in calling the notes by their names, calling rhythms by their names, it's just, it's setting up the future, I think, for actual music learning, while keeping it completely, um, making it an unforgettable embodied experience.
0: In exploring how reading difficulties are revealed through a struggle to grasp rhythm, you look at how music and spoken language really co-evolved, which is important because a lot of us don't realize that music had to have been around much longer than written text. What has popular culture gotten wrong in addressing cognitive disabilities like dyslexia in this regard?
1: I think that the interesting question here is that, and this is kind of we're getting off uh, in the philosophical thing. Why is it that music has been for a long time considered only a pleasurable activity and not something essential? And neuroscience has brought this to the forefront by analyzing why a child is dyslexic, for example, or at least understanding the symptoms. For me, that was one of the most profound moments in the research for the book, which was that realizing that this ability to clap together, which most of us do with no effort, without that fundamental thing in place, you can't make music together. And it turns out that the child who cannot clap in time with her friends, this is a big red flag, meaning that she could be having problems, future dyslexic problems, attention deficiency. She may find herself on the autism spectrum. So I found it absolutely amazing that something as basic and as fundamental as the ability to move in rhythm together when you don't have it there are going to be problems so I think that it's very profound I think that it's obvious that we we need music in our lives and probably this is the you know music therapists have have been have known this for a very long time and I think sometimes that music therapy is an underrated field and that neuroscience is proving what they've probably been saying for a long time
0: most popular nursery rhymes have been around for more than 300 years. Why have they remained so beloved over this time, despite some of these songs possessing pretty disturbing subject matter?
1: I think that the reason is that they're absolutely child perfect. Children need things that are have uh, short sentences. When you hear a, a child beginning to speak at the very beginning, they say, me want bottle. Anything that has repetition in it, you'll see with any child, as soon as you even say, Doop, bee, bee, doop, boop, doop, 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 doop. They'll start doop, doop, dooping with you pretty fast. So they have this short, very rhythmic format, these, these nursery rhymes. There's a lot of repetition. So the child learns to predict what's going to happen next, plus the rhyming. Children love things that rhyme. So it, it's this whole mini little perfect formula for learning language because it contains repetition, rhymes, and a very catchy rhythmic thing, which involves the child's body.
0: On the subject of your year five class, why is a four-year-old's belief in unicorns especially valuable for what you're aiming to do with this age group?
1: Hmm, the editor never took away that title, but... Having to I do guess with it,
0: pretend play, I think.
1: Yes, exactly. It's because I think that creativity in childhood is so extraordinary and needs to be nurtured because we're going to need a lot of creativity in the in the coming decades. It's going to be a challenging time. And if you're always telling a child, no, that's not true, or that can't happen, you're cutting off this whole fantasy life. And there have been studies that show that creativity actually is more important than IQ in terms of lifelong success and happiness. So I think that when you encourage a child to make up stories, fantastic, crazy stories, either just telling the stories, or if if possible, also with music. And if you bring fantasy and just off the beaten path, crazy stories, you're telling the child, it's okay to have an imagination and to imagine things that n- aren't necessarily real. Hmm. And goodness knows, when I was a child, I remember thinking, Wouldn't it be amazing if we were able to see somebody when we talked to them on the phone? So that was definitely not real then, and it sure is real now.
0: Yes, it is. Improvisation used to be the cornerstone of classical music. Why do you feel like that practice really started to fade away in the 20th century?
1: There's a lot of uh, research about that. A lot of people think that what happened is that classical music just had such a heyday between the 17th and the 20th century that we had such a massive musical production of music that was written, that when you were trying to become a professional musician, you had to learn and memorize so much music that there just may not have been time for this. Because Mozart and Beethoven both improvised. I think it's also linked to the fact that bizarrely music, classical music has become a musical form that is no longer linked to improvisation, to movement or to dance. It has become a written tradition I think that's too bad, and i'm I'm actually convinced that for children, uh, they will benefit much more from the musical experience if they, if improvising is part of the early musical experience.
0: Most of your year six class has to do with memory. How so?
1: I think it's because we're getting to an age where children need to memorize certain parts of learning. For example, if they're going to have to learn to count, they have to memorize new you know sequences if they're going to learn to do multiplications and that kind of thing, there's a certain amount of material that will be very helpful if they memorize it just easily and durably, whether it's colors, shapes, whatever it is that they've got to memorize. And there is a lot of part of education that does require memory. Learning to write requires memory because you've just got to absolutely remember indelibly that that B sounds like B. So, We started playing around with this idea and just making songs for all those things that the children are required to memorize, knowing that it's not going to be painful because they love singing and dancing. And if they're learning their, you know, their tens tables at the same time, all the better.
0: Well, that still worked for me in high school as well. There was a speech that I had to memorize. I think it was from Shakespeare or something. And my teacher had made a tape for anybody who wanted it where you could actually listen to her essentially singing This speech and it's the best I've ever remembered a speech and probably in my entire life, but certainly in high school.
1: Absolutely. Apparently, if you read a text, you have X duration memory of this. If you listen to a text or you read the text out loud, you'll remember it a little bit better. But apparently, if you sing the text, that's the one you're going to remember the most. And I think it's this circles back to what we discussed earlier, which is that music is inherently multimodal. You can't make music without your body being involved. So if you're listening to your teacher sing the text, you're probably moving around a little bit too. Your body is involved somehow, and you're increasing the number of portals that will help you remember something.
0: So does that mean word and music memory are processed in different parts of the brain then?
1: Exactly how all this is processed is uh, science doesn't entirely agree upon it. And the current idea right now is that there are very parallel paths and there's probably a lot of sharing going on. One hypothesis, which is, I think, largely accepted, is called the Opera Hypothesis by Annie Patel. He thinks that the requirements to make music, the precision of it, the emotion you experience in it, actually fine-tunes your oral perception so well that your speech, or a child's speech, for example, will probably be better for having practiced music. When you're coming back to the idea of the rhythm perception, there's a startling test which shows that the children who can distinguish certain rhythms and certainly phonemes at a very early age, as in six months to a year, this will determine their level of literacy uh, and language skills pretty seriously.
0: Last question, Joan. We've obviously talked about a lot in your classes, year one through year six. Is there anything we haven't covered yet that you feel like is important for people to know about?
1: I would say that something I feel strongly about right now is that uh, we're coming out of a terrible period where only 30% of the world's children have been in school. And I don't know, I think according to where you live in the US, whether your child's been in school or not, or will go back to school, it's hard for them. We've seen it. We've had a couple children whose parents chose to keep them out of school, although French schools have been open for the past year. I was heartbroken. I mean, I see children who can't read social cues and um, no longer can function in a group and I'm a little bit worried about it. And I just feel like if there's one thing that our wonderful new president and his wife want to throw a lot of money into uh, early childhood education. And I think that this is just across the board, something that will benefit these children and will help them, I think, reintegrate this post COVID period. It brings children together, gives them a sense of belonging and all the things we discussed about self-control they'll get this back. They will be able to work better together as a group. And I just think it's something that schools and daycare centers should really think about because I can tell you it it will fast track all this adaptation that needs to happen again.
0: All right, Joan, I'm going to challenge you before I bid you adieu. Normally I ask my guests for show liners before we cut off our Zoom conversation, but you're the first guest that I've spoken with has not only sang for me during our conversation but you've also played some piano as well so if you are up to it I would like you to provide a show liner for me where you say your name you say the book title you can say the subtitle as well and then say and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling but do so in a musical manner
1: okay my name is Joan Koenig. I wrote the musical child using the power of music to raise children who are happy, healthy, and whole. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey, Trey Elling. Books on Pod, Books on Pod, Trey, Trey Elling.
0: She is Joan Koenig, the founder of the L'Ecole Koenig Music School Preschool and Kindergarten in Paris, established in 1986. She's also a graduate of the Juilliard School and the author of an excellent new book, The Musical Child, using the power of music to raise children who are happy, healthy and whole. Joan, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this very important book.
1: Thank you, Trey, uh, for your wonderful work and thank you for the
0: podcast. Join me next time when I speak with two-time Grammy winner and Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Famer Bobby Rush on I Ain't Studdin' ya. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.